Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. As we gather, Easter is one of those days where um, historically what you hope is that um, everybody knows, you know, this is what we do every week. This is who we worship every single week. We proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ every week. And, uh, and every week for the Christian is a celebration of uh, Christ and his work. And so in one sense, especially in the Protestant tradition, there's nothing different about today for us uh, than any other uh, day of worship where we come and we gather and we do what we do. But we do take the opportunity on, uh, on this day, celebrate Easter, um, to think in particular about that work that Christ has done. Let me start uh, by asking you a question. <clears throat> a couple of questions, actually. And I want you to think um, what it would look like, for instance, if Normandy had failed. What would the world look like if when, our, when the Allied forces landed at Normandy were not successful in that operation? Or take, a, take another one. Um, recent. We're talking this year about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. What if Martin Luther had not gone to the church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses in 1517 on that door. What would the landscape have looked like for these past 500 years? Because any historian you read is going to tell you that the Western world has been largely influenced by the Reformation in the mid-1500s. I mean, we are who we today we are today in large part because of what Luther did that day. What if he hadn't done that? What if Washington, crossing the Delaware, the night of the 25th of December, 1776, what if you've seen the picture of Washington in the boat, right? Crossing the Delaware with the icebergs. It was a terrible winter. About half of the Continental Army was left on the other side. Washington marched on Trenton with 2,400 soldiers. What if he failed again? They had lost a number of battles up to that point. It was an operation taken in great haste, hopefully to catch the British Army off guard. What if they were ready? What if he had failed? Historians largely believe that that was the turning point in the American Revolution, in our story. If he fails that night, if, if that group, 2,400 men that Washington commandeered that evening, if they fail, the Continental Army's crushed. Recruiting was already way off. You and I would probably be speaking a wee bit different. Eh, lad? What if? 
This morning we're coming to a passage I like to call the Great Easter If. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, you want to grab that, that blue pew Bible. It's on page 815. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It is the great if of Easter. And I want us to read that passage together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. The Apostle Paul says, But if... It is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How, come, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word, and we would ask as we meditate on it, as we think about it, as I speak concerning it, that all of these things would be acceptable in your sight. We pray, Father, that you would plow our hearts, that the message would take root, and we would leave changed, all for your glory and for our good. Amen. In these few verses, there are seven important ifs that the Apostle Paul is driving home. If what Paul is saying is the case, if the great Easter if is a reality, it changes everything. If Christ has been raised from the dead, It changes everything. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, it changes everything. This passage is one of the passages, it it, it has a, you know, we, we like to say it has a very hard edge to it. This is not kind of a a soft peddling of, you know, so it's Easter. Let's think about the the newness of life. Winter is over. It's the springtime. The flowers are blooming. The, The lilies are out. You have your spring dresses on. The new dress, uh, the new white suede bucks, the new, you know, I should have wore mine. I wasn't thinking. Right? 
It's the newness. So in some, in some circles, Easter is just a metaphor for living. It's, a, it's kind of a metaphor for, for life. Well, you know, resurrection. And Listen, Paul is talking all about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's not merely saying, hey, look, the resurrection is kind of a good idea. It kind of puts Jesus out there. And, you know, he's a really nice teacher and everything. And, and follow his lead. He'll, he'll teach you how to live a good life. Jesus is saying, if, Paul is saying, if Jesus was raised, it changes everything. If he wasn't, it changes everything. There's no nice, soft, middle, squishy ground. Now, what was Paul doing? Paul was trying to help the Corinthian church because they had an issue. And the issue in the church was that there were people who were teaching that their resurrection wasn't going to happen. There were people in the church that were teaching there was no general populist resurrection. Are you with me? That's what they were saying. They're saying there's no resurrection from the dead. So the passage is really, he's really trying to answer that question because that was the question of the day. They had this pocket of folks and they were essentially teaching there's no resurrection. That was what people were holding on to. That was kind of the essential core of of the, the new message that Paul was preaching. But this group was saying no. And so the Apostle Paul uh, comes along, and he is he is trying to answer that question for them. Now, perhaps this is something that you have or haven't thought a whole lot about. But let me ask you this morning. Do you believe in the great day that God has appointed, that the bodies of those who have died are going to be raised from the grave? Do you believe that? That's a, that's a real question. I'm not gonna, you, don't, you don't have to raise your hand or stand up or anything. But I really want you to ask yourself the question. Do you believe that? Do you believe, you've probably been to a funeral, you've put the body in the grave and, and you've covered it in dirt. And Do you believe that those bodies are going to be raised on the day God has appointed. If you don't, and my guess would be this morning, about 30% of you do not. How can you say that? The ushers were conducting a poll this morning as you walked in. No. Because polls have been done. And and it's really it's really interesting. The polls that have been done of people who attend church at least once a month for several years now, about 30 to 35% of those folks don't believe in a bodily resurrection. Believe in a spirit resurrection, but not a bodily resurrection. Now, if you, if you look at some of the polls that have been done generally in our country, the number jumps way up, right? So we're a Christian nation, but about 60% of the population doesn't believe in a bodily resurrection. That would make sense. Not that Christian, right? So this morning I would say, right, yeah, if we took a slice, probably, probably 30% of you, a third, would not believe in a bodily resurrection. And, and 
And there's going to be another portion of you that, see, you're just, you know, I want to know, is it going to be the skinny me, the young me, the old me, the wrinkled me, the bald me, right? Which me is going to get raised? So we have questions. So I want you to think. As we work through it, I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul's argument. Because the issue that he was dealing with in the first century church is the exact same issue we probably have today. Because we're people just like them, and nothing new is under the sun. And so we're asking the same questions. And if you haven't asked it before, you probably should. Because the Apostle Paul is going to tell you, it's not the case. You're just wasting your time. Down through the ages, it's been a question. The Apostles, the Apostles' Creed, written in about the 4th century, contains the line, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Now, you know why they put that in the Creed? Because it was an issue. Right? You put core essential things in your creeds because you want everybody on the same page when everybody might not be on the same page. And so you give it to them. Here's what we believe. Nicene Creed, 5th century, written about 451. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. It's an issue. And guess what? It's okay to think about it. It's okay to it's okay to have those doubts fluttering around in your head. We want to think on it a little bit this morning. Do you believe your body will be raised from the grave on the day appointed by God? Now perhaps you're saying, okay, why are we talking about our resurrection? Why aren't we talking about Jesus' resurrection? And that's where I want us to be working towards because we're going to see it in here. It's a good question. But Paul is saying here in the, in, in the passage, right, your resurrection from the grave is so connected to Jesus' resurrection from the grave that the two can't be separated. So if you believe that he was resurrected, then it should follow that you can be resurrected. Likewise, if you believe that you can't be resurrected, then you don't believe that he was. That's how Paul links these up. That's why it changes everything. That's why there's no soft, squishy middle ground. Look at verse 12. But if, he says, it is preached that Christ was raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? See, Paul's saying all along, listen, that is a core tenet of our message, that Christ was resurrected from the grave. And if that's what we preach, how could you possibly believe otherwise? He goes on. And he says, and if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus himself wasn't raised from the dead. Now think about the polling, right? There's a whole slice of people out there that don't believe in their resurrection. And guess what? You know what the polling bears out? Those same people tend not to believe not only in their own resurrection, but in the resurrection of Christ. 
Ah, you see, they really are linked. About 30 to 35% of church population doesn't even believe in the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Go to Europe, that number jumps way up. So they're connected. And if Christ has not been raised, the Apostle Paul says, then the act of preaching and thus the act of worship and the act of faith is useless. Paul says it's empty. Some translations say vain, pointless. Now think about that. If you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, then you probably don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then what we do here right now this morning and every Sunday just like it is worthless. That's what Paul's saying. It's empty. It's vain. Let me ask you, if someone told you that your job was empty, pointless, and vain, would you show up the next day? You might get a paycheck. Would you be discouraged? Very. Would you push the pencil anymore? Probably not. Because you instinctively believe that what you do matters, that what you do has substance to it, that it that it's that is intrinsically valuable at some level. And what about worship? When you come and you worship and you sing and you say the words, you believe that somehow they have value. And Paul's saying they're only valuable because Jesus is who he says he is. This is very important because what he's really saying is much deeper than just about the resurrection. He's saying, listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then the rest of Jesus is useless. You know why? Because the resurrection is kind of like, um, it's the receipt. It's uh, it's a bill of sale. It's the, it's the final act, if you will. Like, right, Jesus came down, he claimed to be God, the God-man, and he lived a perfect life and he died. And if that's the end of the story, if his body was still in the grave or still in the tomb or, or wherever, and he, never le- and he never bodily resurrected, guess what? It's pointless. Because everything that he did hinges on the resurrection. And so if you don't believe that Jesus was resurrected, then the rest of what Jesus did is useless. Because in his resurrection, he fully and finally conquers death. Now that isn't the case for everyone. Not everyone looks at Jesus and says that. Here's what Gandhi said in his autobiography as he talked about Jesus. He said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher. His death on the cross... Are you ready for this? Was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue to it, my heart could not accept. So here's what Gandhi says. 
Connie says Jesus is a great moral teacher. Right? Jesus showed us the way of sacrificial living. Paul says, Jesus did no such thing. That the ultimate purpose for which he came was to pay the penalty for your sin by his death on a cross. He was your substitute. He died in your place. And to conquer death, God raised him from the grave. And if that doesn't happen, if that didn't happen, then it's pointless because Jesus didn't come to be a good teacher. He didn't come to show you how to love people. He didn't come so you could follow in his steps and make the world a better place. He didn't come to show you how to live a life of sacrifice. He came to fulfill the law's demands in your stead. That is the teaching of historic Christianity. Jesus was our substitute. That's why when John sees him coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't take away the sin of the world by by dying on a cross and staying in the grave. And so he was resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus is the seal. It's the bill of sale. Paul, Paul goes on, verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in what? Your sins. If Christ has not raised, your faith is useless, and you are as you were. Nothing has changed about you. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to give you a leg up. He didn't come because you needed a little help. Right? What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And while you were dead, Christ died for you. See? That's the, that's the message. But it is only, only viable if Jesus rose from the grave and conquered death. If he didn't, then death holds the last card. That's what Paul says. Verse 18, Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are what? Lost. And then he says the most amazing thing. Verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If only, so this is what Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, if there is no hope in our death, we are most to be pitied. Why? Here's why. Because Paul knows, right, that the Christian understanding what Christ has done, understanding what took place the the night before his death when he met with his disciples and he sat there with them and he washed their feet and he told them, right, I have loved you, now you love one another that way, right? 
he showed them the sacrificial nature of his. It was kind of a moving picture. And then they shared the Passover, and he essentially said, this is mine, right? This is the new meal. It's a new supper. I am going to give myself for you. And so Paul knows that, right? And so that's kind of infused into who we are. When we come to faith in Christ, life changes. The last become first and the first become last, right? We die to self. We, we don't pursue what the world pursues. We don't long for what the world longs for. All of those things kind of go away. And so we become passionless about stuff and we become passionate about him. And when that happens, we askew the, we askew the trappings that the, that the world offers us. Do we enjoy the life that God has given to us and the things that he's given to us? Absolutely. But we don't live for them. We live for him. And so it transforms who we are and what we're doing. And, but what Paul says is, if you've, if you've lived your life that way, right, eschewing the stuff of the world, and you end up at the end and that's it, then we're most to be pitied. What he's saying is, if that's true, then we've missed out. In another little part, he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? Die. If that's all there is. But that isn't all there is. Paul moves on, right? Instead of stop the ride, let me off, he, he doubles down. And he says, since he has been raised from the dead, right? Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And not only that, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? What are first fruits? What he's saying is, when Christ rose... He had coattails. He's bringing you with him. He's the first fruits from among the dead. Now, oh, okay, well, easy to say. Look back at the beginning of chapter 15. If you're there in your Bible, just turn back to the beginning of the chapter. Because I said the whole chapter is about the resurrection. And look what he says. Brothers, I want to remind you, verse 1 of the gospel I preached to you and received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sin according to the scripture. He was buried and he raised on the third day. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Peter. Okay, we can... Peter's crazy. So let's just put Peter over here. Peter had an aberration. He doesn't count. I'm with you. And then to the 12. Ah, okay. That kind of messes, that throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in. Now 12 people had to have seen him. Verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of us still living though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. You see what Paul does, right? He says, look, there are, he appeared to 500 people. If you doubt, go ask them. They're still alive. Most of them are still living. A few of them have died and fallen asleep in Christ, but many of them are still alive. Go ask them. 500 people don't miss see something. 
500 people don't see UFOs together. It's always a lone cop or, or somebody on the road out in the middle of Arizona desert, right? And nobody else sees it. But, but Paul says 500 people after he appeared to the 12, after he appeared to Peter. And so there were a number of witnesses. But here is perhaps the greatest thing. The greatest thing is that prior to the resurrection, the disciples were completely dejected. We talked Friday. The two men who show up for the body of Christ in John 19, do you know who they are? It's not Peter and John. It's a guy named what is it? Arimathea? Joseph of Arimathea. Thank you. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea and another guy named Nicodemus. They show up for the body of Jesus. Because the apostles were dejected. They were wounded. They, they didn't know what to do. They were bewildered. They were scared. They had just killed Jesus. They were intimately connected to him, they feared for their lives. And let me ask you a question. If you feared for your life at that moment, how is it then that they ended up going into all the world and turning it upside down? Do you know why you are here this morning? It is because those apostles were turned completely upside down. They went with wild abandon. Most of them martyred for their faith. You're not martyred for something. It's an aberration. You just don't. And that's what Paul is telling us. And so what is he saying? He's saying, listen, it changes everything. It changed everything for the apostles, for the disciples. It changed everything for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Let me ask you, do you believe and the resurrection of Christ. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying two things. If the resurrection didn't happen, your faith is futile. Quit preaching, quit doing religion because it's pointless. It changes nothing. It amounts to nothing. But if he was resurrected from the dead, if you believe that he was resurrected from the dead, then you've got to be all in. Otherwise, you don't really believe it. Because if God raised him from the dead, doesn't it kind of demand your attention and cause you to be all in? Yeah. They were all in. He appeared to them. Here's my hands, my side. See it for what it is. And they went forth into the world and they changed it. The resurrection changes everything. What has it changed for you? Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word and 
Father, um, we would just ask that the truth of the resurrection would indeed change us. We want to hear from you and we want to be moved by you. So Holy Spirit, come and work in the hearts of your people for your glory and 